Amen. Bless the Lord for that worship. Thank you, worship team. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Please join me now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you are the giver of life. And Lord, we thank you that your son, Christ Jesus, left his heavenly throne, he left his riches, and he became poor, became poor for sinners like us. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you took on human flesh to save wretches like us. Thank you that the grave could not hold you back. You rose victoriously, and anyone who trusts in you is a conqueror because you have conquered sin and death. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating sinners. You have the power to bring those who were once in darkness, those who were once dead, you bring them to life through the power of the word. Holy Triune God, we come to you now and ask for your grace in this hour. Bless the preaching of your word. Lord, your servant is weak, but Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so I come asking for your power to preach your word and that Christ would be glorified. Lord, we pray for your people that they would be strengthened to be more like Christ. But we pray above all for those who are still in darkness. Lord, please bring them out of darkness and bring them into your marvelous light. For you are the light of the world. And we ask this all by faith. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. 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 All right. Good morning, church. All right. In early 2008, a new reality television program aired for the first time called What Would You Do? The concept of the show is that the host, along with a hidden camera crew, captures on video how ordinary people respond when they observe other individuals who are actually actors, do something unethical or culturally unacceptable in their presence in public places. The goal is to draw as much attention to the situation that it would prompt a response from witnesses in the area. Once an unsuspecting person intervenes, the host immediately interrupts the scene to question the individual on what compelled the person to get involved. One particular episode featured an actress portraying herself as a mother eating out in a restaurant with her 10-year-old child, in which the child spilled their juice. The mother then erupted in an angry verbal tirade in which she attempted to discipline the child by putting hot sauce on their tongue. Uh, I hear some responses already. Okay, good, good. So what would you do? What would you do if you saw this happening right in front of you? Would you try to stop the mother? Or would you try to encourage her to keep going? Or would you be indifferent and try to ignore it? The show is quite entertaining, as well as interesting to see how people respond to situations that test their beliefs. Now, with that in mind, I want to ask that you please open up your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, where we will take a close look at a conversation between Jesus and a man whose beliefs on how to get to heaven were tested. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. The scripture reads as follows. And as he was setting out on a journey, 
a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 22, we will observe four truths that you must accept to inherit eternal life. Four truths that you must accept to inherit eternal life. Truth number one, you must accept that Jesus is the only one to run to for eternal life. That's in verse 17. Truth number two, you must accept that Jesus is God. That's in verse 18. Truth number three, you must accept that you have broken God's commandments. That's in verses 19 to 20. And the last one, truth number four, you must accept Jesus' invitation to eternal life on his terms. And that's in verses 21 through 22. Now, in order for us to identify where the Lord Jesus is at this particular time in his ministry, our human author, John Mark, being led by the divine author, the Holy Spirit, informs us in the beginning of chapter 10. And let's go there quickly. And it says, and rising up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. The there that is being referred to is actually the area of Capernaum. And Mark recorded that earlier in chapter 9, verse 33. So the Lord and his disciples were leaving from Capernaum and are now heading towards Judea beyond the Jordan. If we were to do a brief review of chapter 10 for some further context of what's happening, we would see in verses 1 through 12, Jesus teaching the crowds and correcting the infamous Pharisees, a strict religious sect within Judaism. They were always seeking opportunities to test the Son of God on the law of God. This time it's regarding divorce. Skim further down to verses 13 through 16, and we find Jesus correcting his disciples. Since they had just rebuked a group of parents who were only trying to bring their children to the Lord for a blessing. Which now brings us to our text this morning. Let's go back to verse 17. And it reads, And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Stop right there. So who is this man? Although in the Synoptic Gospels this man is not identified, we learn in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, that this man was young and that he owned much property. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 23, we learn that this same man was a ruler and that he was extremely rich. Your Bible probably has this section titled as the rich young ruler. Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary notes that this rich young man was probably a ruler in the synagogue. 
Now with a description like rich, young, ruler, and of course an owner of much property, we can conclude that this man is a boss. We can also conclude that he was well known in the, in the community, not only for his economic status, but also due to his position. He is a ruler in the synagogue. During that time in the Jewish community, everything was centered around the synagogue. For this man to have been a ruler at a young age, in which commentaries place him at at least 40 years or older, excuse me, or, young, or younger, he definitely demonstrated to the elders that he was well learned in the Torah, that he was capable of being in such a high position, and was, from man's perspective, keeping the law of God. Yet in spite of having money, power, respect, and even religion, we find that this man still has a deep need. And we know that he had a deep need, as it is displayed in his running, which brings us to the first truth in our outline. Truth number one, you must accept that Jesus is the only one to run to for eternal life. Now, quick question, have you ever had to run for something? Of course you have. You probably ran to the store this past week to pick up an item you needed. You probably ran to work since you were running late. And if you went to the schools that I did in New York, you probably had to run for your life. <laughs> yeah, y'all laughing, but I wasn't laughing when I was going to them schools. But God is good. Well, just like yourself, this man also ran. And Mark is the only writer within the Synoptic Gospels that tell us that the rich young ruler ran. He's also the only one that points out that he knelt before the Lord Jesus. Now, this man is a ruler, yet he bowed his knee before another. The word knelt in Greek means to fall on one's knees, either in reverence and honor or to implore aid. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. And it reads as follows. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. This rich young ruler's actions were just as desperate as that father with a demon-possessed son. He needs help. And of all the people he could have ran to, he ran to Jesus. Please notice that this man did not run to anyone else. He ran to Jesus. He probably tried running to his fellow rabbis, but they obviously could not help him because he's still running. He probably tried running to his rich buddies, but they probably tried to convince him, you're too blessed to be stressed. Clearly, the cliche didn't help him because he's still running to Jesus. Now, let me ask you another quick question. Who are you running to for answers on everlasting life? Who are you bowing your knee to and seeking direction on how to get to heaven? Is it the Pope? Is it Jehovah's Witnesses? Mormons? Muhammad? Darwin? The ancestors? Nature? All roads lead to God anyway, right? No loved ones. Jesus is the only one that you should run to for eternal life. 
everyone and everything else is death. In John 14, 6, Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the rich young ruler ran. He knelt and he asked Jesus for help on how to get to heaven. Now, did you notice the very honorable greeting that he gave to Jesus? He called Jesus good teacher. Pastor David Guzik in his commentary on this chapter argues, and I quote, this title was never applied to other rabbis in Jesus' day because it implied sinlessness, a complete goodness. Jesus and everyone else recognized that he was being called by a unique title. So how does the Lord respond? Let's go to verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, this actually brings us to our second truth on how to receive eternal life. Truth number two, you must accept that Jesus is God. Jesus was not flattered or taken away with this greeting. Do you know why? Because Jesus is able to see the thoughts and the hearts of men. And if you're thinking that only God can do that, you are right. In John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. In Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus healed a paralytic simply by telling him his sins were forgiven. The scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy to themselves. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus knew their thoughts. And he told them to stop thinking evil in their hearts. So Jesus is going to do what God does best. Open heart surgery. Jesus is going to test the rich young ruler's heart on whether he truly believed that who he was talking to was none other than the holy uncreated one the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God in human flesh. Now, if you ever hear someone make an unsupported statement like, Jesus never said that he was God in the Bible, please lovingly show them that Jesus made it abundantly clear that he is God indeed. For example, in John chapter 8, verses 56 to 58, Jesus says to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you remember who said that? God said that when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. And if you were thinking Thanos, I will have security escort you out of here. <laughs> Thanos' knee will bow. Yeah. Now, do you know what the Jews did when they heard Jesus say, I am? The Jews tried to stone him. They tried to stone him. 
Again, in John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So when Jesus says in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He was not denying his deity. He was actually affirming it. He also affirmed the sinful nature of man. But we'll get into that later. But what I want to make absolutely clear is that if you want to receive eternal life, not only must you run to Jesus, loved ones, but you must believe that Jesus is God. Please do not believe what these false religions teach, that Jesus was merely a prophet or that he was a God but not the God or that he and Satan are actually brothers. This is foolishness. These are actually lies from the pits of hell. And all who refuse to believe the truth that Jesus is God will spend an eternity there for rejecting this doctrine. Now, after testing the heart of the rich young ruler to see whether he believed that he was talking to God in flesh, Jesus now tests the man to see if he even knew himself. Let's go back to verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. We are now in our third truth in our outline. And that is truth number three. You must accept that you have broken God's commandments. Now, real quick, just for a point of reference, if you were somewhat confused about that, do not defraud, that was Jesus just summing up the 10th commandment about thou shalt not coveting, okay? So, just wanted to make that clear. Also, I don't know if you're familiar with a ministry called Living Waters, or a brother by the name of Ray Comfort, but he does a lot of open-air preaching and evangelizing to people on the streets of L.A., One of the techniques that he uses when he's witnessing the folks is he asks them, do you think you're a good person? And he's actually from New Zealand, so I don't know if you heard my New Zealand accent. (laughs) So he asks, do you think you're a good person? And 10 out of people say that they are. He then asks them if they would be willing to take a test. And that person usually agrees. Brother Ray then asks the individual, How many lies have you told? They respond, countless, with a smirk. Then he would ask them, what what do you call someone who has told a lie? You you call him a liar. That's right. Very good, class. Very good. All right. He then asked them if they've ever stolen anything, regardless of the value. And people always refer to their childhood when they stole some candy. Ray then asked them, What do you call someone who has stolen something? Very good. Some people say stealer. And all the Ravens fans should go nuts like, stealers, get out of here. This is Raven country, baby. All right. All right. 
So Ray continues with the probe on whether they have ever looked upon a person with lust or if they've ever said God's name in vain, in which the person answers yes to all of the above. Brother Ray then recites back what they confessed to him and points out that they have broken at least four of God's Ten Commandments. Now, do you know why he does this? The same reason that Jesus did it with the rich young ruler. It is to lovingly convince that person that they have broken the law of God. And that reveals that they're not a good person. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. It says also in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only God is perfectly holy, perfectly pure, perfectly just, and perfectly righteous. And God is not only perfect, but he is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. If you want to believe that there was a big bang, the bang was that God spoke. He said, let there be light. And darkness could not contain itself. The light had to shine. It says also in Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and, and those who dwell in it. So what? Well, since he made everything, he owns everything. And that includes you and me. Therefore, you and I are required to live according to his rule. And you know what he requires you and I to do? Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm -mm. Houston, we have a problem. Why do we have a problem? Thank you, brother. The Lord bless you. I don't know how you do it here every week, Leek. Man, thank you, brother. The Lord bless you. Mm. <laughs> Y'all praying for me, right? I hope somebody pray for me. Mm. Mm. <sighs> Help me, Lord. So you and I are not perfect. But that doesn't change God's standard one bit. But you may argue, but I'm only human. I may have told a lie and stole some candy, but I never killed anyone. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of them all. One point. See, that's the absolute holiness of God, loved ones. How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before they were thrown out of the garden? 
One. One. And as a result of our first parents disobeying God's one commandment, sin and death entered the world. And we inherited a sinful nature from them because we were all in them, as Romans 5.12 teaches. So now everyone who was born in this world is automatically born a sinner and will die. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Can you imagine, for those of you who work tirelessly and diligently in your jobs, and you come on Friday to get your paycheck, and the boss hands you death. Good job. That's what you deserve, death. And if that's not enough, Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is appointed to die once, and after that, face judgment. So what happens to those who have sinned against a holy and perfect God and refuse to repent and trust solely in Jesus? Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God has the authority to take every last unrepentant sinner and toss them into an eternal lake of fire. That is bad news. Aren't you tired of hearing bad news? I mean, really. Sure you are. I know you are. I see some of your reactions on Facebook. You're tired of hearing bad news. But you must hear it. You must hear it in order to appreciate the good news. Do you want to hear some good news? That didn't sound very convincing. Do you want to hear some good news? Praise God. I'm so glad you said that. Because instead of God giving us what we deserve, which is death and an eternity in hell, he gave us what we don't deserve, a savior. God is good. And that Savior's name is Jesus. And there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. (laughs) Loved ones, one of the reasons why Jesus left his heavenly throne where he was being worshipped and adorned as he so rightly deserves. One of the reasons why he left it to come and to take on human flesh here on earth was because he was the only one that could rescue lawless, helpless, sinful people like us. How did he accomplish that? I'm so glad you asked again. He did it by living the perfect life that you and I were required to live, but failed to do. And after living on earth for 33 years and never, never, sinning against any of God's commandments. He died on the cross to pay the penalty in full for all lawbreakers who turn to him in saving faith. It gets better. Jesus not only died on the cross, he not only took upon the sins of all those who trust in him on his body on the cross, 
But the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 was that he was buried because that's where dead people go. They have to be buried. But it gets even better because after three days, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he was seen by over 500 witnesses before he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. And if you believe the gospel, all you need to do is believe. And if you believe this gospel, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 gives you assurance. And it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an eternal promise, loved ones. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. When God says it, it is true. Amen. And I just want to stress the fact that if, if you and I were ever able to keep the commandments, or if we could have ever produced enough good works to save ourselves, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. But the fact that he came was evidence that there was no other way for sinners to be reconciled to God. No other way. And if you believe that you can get to heaven without repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus as your personal savior, you will have to stand before the judge of all judges with no legal representation. No defense attorney. And God doesn't need a prosecutor to give him the evidence. He already knows what you've done. He knows everything that you have done. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Behold, even the darkness is light to him. God sees everything. And so how would you stand before a holy and high God? You would stand guilty before that court of heaven. And God is a judge. He must judge righteously. He doesn't wink at sin. He's not some little grandfather who says, ha, you know, no big deal. Kids will be kids. He crushed his only son who he loved because there was no other way. That should concern you. It concerns me. Moreover, it concerns God. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. But not everyone will come to repentance. And that's the scary part. Let's go back to the rich young ruler. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
Do not bear false witness and do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Really? Really? Well, that's not good enough, rich young ruler. That's not good enough. Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You are a sinner from the moment of you were conceived. Galatians 2, 15 through 16 says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Yet this man was still trying to justify himself that he was worthy to go into heaven based on his own righteousness. That's absurd. You know how he should have responded? Like the tax collector did in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, when he beat his breasts and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. What makes people think that they could be good enough on their own merit to get into heaven? Pride. And you know who set that off? Satan. Oh, he wanted to be like the Most High. Excuse me? Oh. Jesus said he saw Lucifer cast out of heaven like lightning. How dare you? You know what God calls your most righteous deeds? Filthy rags. Filthy, soiled rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Now you and I might start getting impatient with a person who thinks that he's just thinking way too highly of himself, but not Jesus. Look how the Lord responds to him. Verse 21, and looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That brings us to our third truth in our, in our outline. Excuse me, our fourth truth. You must accept Jesus' invitation to eternal life on his terms. Now I need you to hang in there because I want you to see the heart of God. You must know that the same God who I said earlier is infinitely holy, infinitely perfect, infinitely righteous and just. He is also loving, infinitely loving. He's kind, he's merciful, and he's compassionate. Loved ones, Jesus was on his way towards Jerusalem to face the cross. Yet he made time to speak with this rich young ruler, even though he knew he was not going to accept him and his offer for eternal life. What a loving, compassionate God. Here's Psalm 145, 8 through 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. 
God is good. He allows the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. There are people that are blaspheming his name every day, and he still gives them health. He still gives them a job. He gives them family. He gives them all of these things. God is good. And when Jesus told this man to sell all that he possessed and give it to the poor, he wasn't endorsing socialism. Jesus wasn't trying to start the first green party. He was calling the rich young ruler to repentance from his idolatry because that's what a loving God does. The rich young ruler was in denial that he had violated the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Walter Chantry says in his book, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, and I quote, it was also an essential demand of the gospel that he forsake his wealth. He must turn his back on his green God to have heavenly treasures. This is the heart of true repentance. The Lord gave the rich young ruler clear instructions on what to do to receive eternal life. He told him to repent of his sins and trust in Jesus as Lord. How did the rich young ruler respond? Let's look at verse 22. But at these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. What happened? This is so heartbreaking. This man had a great start. It was such a great start. He ran. He ran to Jesus, and this is amongst the crowds. He didn't let that stop him. He knelt. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He knelt before the Lord Jesus. And then he asked, as a, as a ruler in a synagogue, what must I do to receive eternal life? I mean, what more do you ask? But he refused. He refused to believe that he was a sinner in desperate need of salvation. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary that was martyred, once said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How foolish of anyone to allow worldly treasures that you can't take with you anyway to keep you from eternal life. It's even more foolish. It's even more foolish to have heard this warning and for you to go and do likewise, to turn away. The story did not end there though, for Jesus used the rich young ruler as an object lesson for his disciples. He said it was, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the gates of heaven. I mean, the disciples were stunned. They were stunned. And please take notice of this. 
Jesus did not go running after the rich young ruler. He let him go. Because at some point, when a sinner wants his sin more than the very God who crushed his only son whom he loved, whom he raised from the dead in order to redeem sinners, God will let you have what you wanted more than him. Spending the rest of eternity tormented by your thoughts of how you rejected his love, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now, what will you do? The hidden camera is no longer on the rich young ruler. He's done. It's now on you. What will you do? Jesus is saying to you at this very moment, come, follow me. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. As 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, please do not put off something so important as eternal life. You don't know what tomorrow holds for you. Truthfully, you don't even know what this afternoon holds for you. No one gets a heads up that tragedy is on the way. It just appears with no warning. You see what's going on in our world today. No one in El Paso was given a text message saying, you're going to die today. No one in Dayton, Ohio was informed via email that the disaster was going to strike. For you young folks, I know you see this white on my beard, but believe it or not, I was once young too. Your parents were once young too. And now when I was younger, I remember when people would talk to me about God, older people would talk to me about God, and I said, nah, man, I want to live it up first. When I get older, then maybe, maybe I'll turn to God. I thank the Lord for his grace and his mercy that he did not let me die in my sins. So what are you waiting for? What will you do? Now, if I could for a moment, I just want to talk with those of you who are already saved. You've already tasted and seen that the Lord is good and worthy to be praised. You were in here worshiping him in spirit and in truth and praise God for that. But could I ask you a question? What is it going to take for you to present the gospel to this lost world? What are you waiting for? You brush shoulders every day with people who are lost and you just let them go. You're not Jesus. You're not omniscient. You don't know who's going to heaven or not. We are to work while it is day, for the night is coming when no man will be able to work. We are supposed to be salt and light. People should taste 
the flavor of Jesus on your life. They should see the light of Jesus in your life. Stop hiding it. And I know what that fear feels like. Sometimes I fear man more than I fear the God. Jesus says, don't don't fear man who can hurt the body. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul in torment. That's the one who you're to fear. Why are you being slow to obey the Great Commission? Jesus commands that you go out and make disciples. He didn't suggest it. It's not a great suggestion if I get around to it. Are you ashamed of Christ? Are you more concerned about what people think of you than what the Lord thinks about you? We will have to give an account for everything. Every word that was spoken, we will have to give an account for how we used our time. Stop wasting time. Redeem the time. You are an ambassador for Christ. As though God were, 2 Corinthians 5.21, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we're called to do. That's our marching orders. And by the way, there's a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks on how to evangelize. I better see you there. I mean, what do you want more? You want more funerals where you're wondering about whether your loved ones were saved or not? Hmm? Another quote from Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. This is too important. This is too important. The gospel is of first importance. And if by chance you are here today and you're actually struggling to know whether or not you're saved, I just want you to know that the Bible encourages you to test yourselves, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Do you love God? And not the God of your own making, but the God of the scriptures? Do you love his word? Do you read it? Do you desire to live holy? Do you love being around his adopted sons and daughters? Because that 
Those are, those are evidences of a changed life. Do you hate your sin? When, when I was in darkness, when I was dead in my transgressions, I loved my sin. You didn't have to tell me what to do. I already knew what I was going to do. I was going to sin and I was going to enjoy it. Because that's what dead people do. But when the God, the true and living God, breathed his life into me, when he spoke my name, just like he did Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus had no, he had no other option but to come out of that grave. Jesus had to speak my name. He had to speak me to come out of darkness. And that was the only way that I was able to come and to stand before you this day. And it's not by coincidence. Do you understand me? God is sovereign. He ordained this moment. Praise God. Bless his name. Bless his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for Christ Jesus. You did not hold him. You did not spare him, but you gave him up so that sinners would be reconciled unto you. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you so much that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And that was all you're doing. And God, I thank you for this opportunity to be used by you. And I just want to pray that you are honored and glorified. And I want to pray that your people who are called by your name and according to your purpose, that we would stop wasting time, that we would make the most of our time, and we would go into this lost and fallen and dark world and proclaim the king is coming. Repent and trust in the king. And Lord, I pray, most desperately I pray for any individual here this day, for any individual that may be watching this right now, if they have yet to bow their knee and surrender their hearts, Lord, would this be the day, please, that you would open their eyes, that you would open their eyes to see the desperate need for salvation, that they would behold the wondrous works of your law, that they would see Jesus Christ and be saved. Only you can do that, Lord. And we ask it all by faith in the precious name of Christ. Let all those who love the Lord say amen. Amen. Praise God.